Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa. And we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. Listeners, this is the Curious Reader Podcast, and we are so happy you joined us today. So picture it. 1983. It was the year of the -the off-the-shoulder sweatshirts, guest jeans, swatches, jelly shoes, and leg warmers, and I had all those things. And I had none of them. (laughs) (laughs) It was also the year that I moved to New Hampshire. I entered the third grade and played my first game of Foursquare. And most important to this episode... 1983 was the year that the book we are going to discuss today was published, which also includes a game of squares, but not four square. If you haven't guessed it, we'll be discussing the coming-of-age story, The Queen's Gambit, by Walter Tevis. Many of our listeners may recognize the name because it has taken audiences by storm as a book-to-TV series on Netflix. The game of chess is central to the story. And during this summer, Gosstown Public Library's Summer Experience, that's what we like to call our summer reading program, will feature an intro to chess event. So I thought, what a great time to talk about this book, gearing up for the summer program. And I know that you were right on board with this pick, Melissa. Stacy, I've never actually played Foursquare. I don't even know how. Oh, we'll set up some squares uh, over the summer in the parking lot. And- I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> So this is an adult book that has appeal for older teens, and it's perfect for Women's History Month. And yes, there is a show based on the book. I'll be giving just a few show spoilers that can explain differences between the book and the movie. Not a movie. It's a, it's a series. Um, but just a heads up for that. I just want to say that I marathoned the show, and then I immediately watched it all again. How about you, Stacey? I've watched the first episode so far. Uh, I chose to finish the book first, and then I thought I would head back to the TV series. But then this beautiful spring weather hit. Um, It side-railed me. I've wanted to stay outside because of it. But I think heavy rain is in the forecast for this weekend. So I'll be popping popcorn, grabbing a blanket, and settling in to catch up. And now that I've shared my weekend plans with our listeners, why don't we share our three themes, too? Just a question. How do you like your popcorn? Just with butter and salt? I actually like it with salt and pepper and like a little bit of butter just to hold the salt and pepper on. Do you ever put Parmesan on it? I've not. I like that. That sounds good too, though. I just love popcorn. So I, I you know. I do. It's a perfect food. Low calories and crunchy. Exactly. Unless you put too much butter and a lot of Parmesan on it. Yeah, yeah. No butter. (laughs) (laughs) So our three themes are the history of chess, books made into movies, and women's history. We could also talk about addiction, the history of orphanages, Russian history, the life of author Walter Tevis, who also wrote the famous The Color of Money, 
the so-called threat of communism. There's a lot in this book to discuss. What stood out to you, Stacey, that I have not mentioned? Well, I, you know, I think orphanages and addictions uh, stood out to me as themes, and and I particularly honed in on the different types of addiction. Uh, oftentimes, when addiction is discussed, uh, substance abuse is that main thought, um, you know, and we have that in this book. It was definitely prominent. But I wonder how many people think about a hobby or activity and when that activity kind of crosses the line to being an obsession and an addiction. Uh, so I kind of, I don't know, I saw themes of that in this book. Um, and I also, the presence of the Cold War, that rivalry between um, American and Russian, and that stuck out to me in this book as well. Yeah, lots we could go into. Definitely, definitely. So here's the rundown of the book. Uh, the book is set in the 1960s, and eight-year-old Elizabeth Harmon has just been dropped off at the Methuen home. It's an orphanage in Kentucky. Her mother has died in a car accident, and Beth, as she is called, has no family around to take care of her. Beth is smart, but she is consistently referred to as plain, ugly, or nothing remarkable, and actually she refers to herself that way. Uh, the children at the orphanage stand in line for their cocktail of vitamins and tranquilizers. And soon, Beth is hooked to the little green pills uh, that take away her anxiety, her fear, and tension. One day, Beth is cleaning erasers down in the basement, and she watches as the janitor, Mr. Shabel. And I don't know why, but I keep wanting to put an R. I want to call him Shrabel. I just think it sounds better. But... On the show, they call him Shibel, I think. Oh, well, I'm calling him Shabel. Okay. That's what I'm calling him. Because <laughs> I, I do that. <laughs> anyway, he sits over a green and white checkerboard with funny uh, shapes of different sizes. And soon, Beth gets up the nerve to ask what that mysterious game is. Uh, Mr. Shabel tells her it is chess, and Beth is fascinated. Just by watching, Beth begins to see how the pieces move. She can envision their positions and movements above her as she sleeps at night. And soon, Mr. Shabel realizes Beth is brilliant at chess, and he mentors her as far as he can. The local high school chess coach comes to watch 8-year-old Beth play, and soon she is invited to take on the high school chess team, playing them all simultaneously and winning every single match effortlessly. The story then expands across Beth's life as she goes from an eight-year-old into a teenager. She's, an ad she's adopted by an emotionally distant alcoholic, um, although Beth and Mrs. Wheatley, that's her name, do develop a fondness for each other. And driving everything is Beth's gift of chess playing. She embarks on tournament after tournament, starting with the state tournaments, moving on to the U.S. Open Championship, and her ultimate goal to be the world's greatest chess player by taking on the Grand Masters in Russia. And while being a chess prodigy may be her driving force, her addiction to pills and alcohol might be her undoing. I enjoy this book more than I even thought I would. I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, um, I, I have two things that I kind of want to talk about. And we talk a little bit about the character later on. So I think in this one, I wanted to talk about the author for a moment. So Walter Tevis is a male author, and he's giving life to a female protagonist. Um, and I thought he shined at it, actually. And here's why. Because in Wrapped in Beth's character, he wrote what he knew. Um, at a young age, he lived at a convalescent home, um, a home for those that are ill uh, to be taken care of. And he, he had an illness, um, and his parents were pretty much non-existent. Um, he was there for about a year, I think, and they did come back for him, but... Pretty much during the time he was there and, and even afterwards, it, he did not have a great home life. 
So in the home, he was given uh, phenobarbital, sometimes up to three times a day. Um, and he loved the way it made him feel. And that is not unlike Beth and her tranquilizers. Uh, eventually, Tevis went on to become an alcoholic as well. Um, he began playing chess at the age of seven and loved the game, but his passion was pool. And I think maybe between the hustler and the color of money, we, we probably can, can see that in those books. And those were both made into movies. Um, and the atmosphere of a pool hall gave him a high, not unlike how Beth felt when she took in a tournament. Writing what he knew, I think, brought real authenticity to Beth's character. Yeah, I loved it. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I did too. And here's what I loved about the book. I recognize that I gobble up suspense and psychological thrillers. And actually, this book was kind of that. Um, my favorite part of the book was the chess playing because it ticked both those boxes. The tournaments, oh, the buildup to who would move what piece where. What was the opening move going to be? The Sicilian? The Queen's Gambit? Maybe the French defense? How was Beth going to take this opponent down? I loved being privy to Beth's interior thoughts on how the game would play out. And you know how giddy that I was about the riddles and puzzles um, in the whodunit and the inheritance games. She was giddy. Yeah, I was giddy. I was so I was. Well, I actually had the same feeling reading this book. Every chess game that she was in and every tournament, I was like, (gasps) yeah, it was building up. Uh, And quite frankly, it did not matter that I didn't know a lick of chess. By the end of this book, I wanted to. I found myself at times yelling at Beth. Don't you dare take another drink. Get it together, girl. (laughs) (laughs) You have another tournament. I want to see your mind at work. I truly was amazed at how I took in each chess scene. And um, I give credit to the author's writing on that. Tevis was able to take this game that I think many view as belonging to an older generation. And he built a suspenseful, dramatic, psychologically intense work of fiction. And it kept me coming back. And with that, I know your first theme is the history of chess, Melissa. And I am all years. So take it away. Okay, so my first theme, the history of chess. Um, Okay, so his is a great book to read meaning Tavis is is a great book to read if you want to learn more about chess. Yes. The author has included so much about the game. In his author's note at the beginning of the book, he tells us that the national chess master Bruce Pandolfini proofread the text, so you know that it's accurate. Never skip the author's notes in a book. I did read that part in the book, too. And I think he also wrote something in there, too, about, um, you know, the names that he used, he didn't use actual, some of the greatest because he did not want to diminish right. actually what their name was. So I, I thought that was interesting. He wanted well. you to be in, in the fiction of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For sure. So, um, the, these kinds of author notes usually tell us a lot of information beyond the book where the author got his ideas or how his writings relate to real life mm-hmm. and how they may differ. So I've given you links to some of the most of the famous moves and the people mentioned in the Queen's Gambit on our Pinterest board. So now all of our episodes are on that Pinterest board. So you can take a look at all of our show notes. One could read this book and play out the moves if so inclined. That's not my inclination. <laughs> no, I yeah, no, I, I knew the names of the pieces, but I was even trying to envision like, okay, yeah, I... I'll pretend I know where that is, but... <laughs> right, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it didn't matter. Um, yeah. Reading the technical parts did not take away from my enjoyment of the book, True. even though I'm not into the 
the technical of chess. I learned a bit more about the chess moves than I knew before. Mm -hmm. But in favor of my own interests, I certainly enjoyed focusing more on the culture behind the game. Beyond the book, I've dug into the culture of chess a little bit and learned about some interesting internet sites. One of my favorites is a database on chessgames.com, which is kind of the ultimate site, or at least one of the Mm -hmm. ultimate sites for chess. Um, But this particular database shows moves and variants of moves and who played them in history. It's kind of a primary source of um, chess. You can review different chess masters games, and there is definitely a thriving online chess culture. It's just amazing um, the deep conversations people get into there. So personally, I really wanted to know about the origins of this game. So I decided to steer my research that way. I learned that many different places claim to have invented chess. And you go to these websites where they say, this is how it started, (laughs) which is not really how you can do history. Mm -hmm. History involves a lot more than that. (laughs) Most of the information that rises to the top when you do a Google search says it was invented in India. These sites say the game there was known as Chaturanga, Mm. and it was used as a way to practice war moves. And I think Chaturanga is actually a yoga move. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, when you said it, I was like, wait, I know that move. I do Pilates, but I think like sometimes there's some yoga things in there. And so I was like, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So I wonder what the true meaning of that is, or maybe it's spelled differently. It is. Like they have the warrior. And so, I mean, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Interesting. The websites say that a board was called an ashtapa, and that was first used for other types of games, but was adapted for this new one. The information that says that Chaturanga became Shah after the word meaning king when the game was taken to Persia. The name Shah references the goal of this game to capture this piece, that that is the king. And some believe that this is the origin of our word chess, Hmm. with a similar sounding name to Shah. But the origins of chess are a little more obscure than what the internet makes it out to be, as I said before. It is hard to know the true facts when we're talking about things that happened 1,500 years ago. Yes, it is. <laughs> Researching in databases, the origins about our knowledge of chess became more clear to me. An article from the Times of London from March 12, 2007, called India Claims Game with Checkered History, talks about the work of researchers who went searching for primary sources in the form of textual references and chess artifacts to confirm the game's origins. So huh. they were, they're looking for those primary sources yeah. that I talk to my students about a lot. It was interesting to hear what sources they, they were looking for to back up their claims. A later article that I found from March 21st, 2020, very hmm, recent, yeah. called The Origin of Chess by G. Ferlito and A. San Vito, explores the theories of the origins of chess that have come from many chess historians through history. So it's, it's murky. Yeah. Some believe that the game spread from the Middle East through the Silk Road East to Asia. However, some claim that the early Chinese version of chess developed independently of the Indian version. <laughs> Anyhow, during its travels, the game's rules changed often until the 16th century, when in Europe, and when in Europe, it became the game we know today. The game at this time became an allegory for different social classes and was part of elite education. The queen wasn't added to the chessboard until the until the Middle Ages, which parallels the rise of queens in medieval Europe. It moved from royal courts to social gathering places during the Enlightenment. Hmm. So you can trade. I actually sent a message to um, one of our history teachers because there's a great video on our Pinterest board that kind of sums up everything. Yeah. Um, and I said to him, it really shows history 
through one particular lens, through the lens of chess. And I thought mm-hmm. it might be interesting to, to students huh. to see that. There are claims that the oldest known surviving chess pieces date from the 12th or 13th century. But upon further research, I realized that they meant that these are the oldest European pieces. <laughs> so sometimes in our Western-centric right. view, we forget about the rest. <laughs> Um, These pieces are currently held by the National Library of Scotland and the British Museum. They were found buried on a beach in 1831 and are made from walrus teeth and whalebone. And I must say, as an aside, I never find such interesting things on the beach. I just get excited if I find sea glass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't find much on the beach either. And so in the research, did it say who found it on the beach or was it like it wasn't in a a historian who found it or did somebody just stumble upon it i think someone just stumbled upon (gasps) it and i'm trying to remember you'll have to take a look at the article yeah i will i don't stumble upon anything so no Mm. no i could just picture the guy out there with a metal detector (laughs) but that doesn't work with (laughs) whalebone (laughs) the earliest it doesn't work in the early 19th century either no No, you wouldn't have one of those (laughs) no no (laughs) the earliest eastern chess pieces are harder to identify than these western ones as noted in the Ferlito and San Vito article, some pieces from the first millennium that they have found may or may not be chess pieces. It's sometimes hard to tell when you find an artifact. Yeah. Sometimes we can just say, oh, this is what it is. And upon further review, that's it's, not what it is Right, at all. it doesn't fit that. These may just be figurines. <laughs> so this is a little side note, but one part in the book, um, and it was really, really early on in the book uh, when Beth was talking about the mysterious figures and she was saying what she looked what they looked like and i love that and i knew it was the bishop but she said the one that had looked like a lemon with a slash through it and i thought that was just so funny like how she was trying to describe what the pieces i think she described two of them but that was that one i'm like oh that's the bishop i know that one but i love that it's a lemon with a slash through it (laughs) one thing that i loved um, when watching the show is you, she watches the pieces move on the ceiling. Yes. And when you were talking and describing the book earlier on, that's what I was envisioning with your description. And it's just, you know, you picture objects and the importance of objects and mm-hmm. it gets dark in the room and you go, as the images move it's just very powerful yeah that they showed um some of that in episode one which was the only episode i've watched so far but um and so i i remember that's when i was reading that's what i saw as well because i had already seen it in that in that episode so i envisioned the same thing um well uh, back to the history and the treasure hunt that um it's really fun i love (laughs) history and treasure hunts (laughs) i enjoy history in that way um myself i love when i read about a new discovery or research information such as the history of chess um i'm i'm loving everything that you just said so far melissa and when we uncover new nuggets of information that I never heard before. It's another piece of the puzzle connecting the past and the present to the world around us. And it must be amazing to look at an artifact and ponder how it was used, its significance to the era it belongs to. And then when another primary source material confirms, because as we said, some things might just be figurines, but when it confirms its meaning, I imagine it's like that joy you feel when a jigsaw puzzle starts to come together and you can see that image spark to life. Yeah, so I have a lot of experience in this area because I'm an archivist by training, which means I work with primary sources. So it really is exciting um, when this happens. So for example, um, when I worked with primary sources as my main job, the excitement over finding something new was just amazing. And as I was thinking about this, I flashed back to when I once had a letter written by Thomas Jefferson donated to the library where I worked in Waltham. 
Um, the letter was requesting lumber from the bil- for the building of Thomas Jefferson's home. And based on a little research, I reasoned that he was buying timber for the building of his first home, which burned down before Monticello. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think he had two that burned down before okay. Monticello. Um, and that's the one we think of today. Mm-hmm. Never mind that I was holding a piece of paper. I know. That Thomas Jefferson <gasps> held in my hands. So <laughs> I can't like gingerly. I mean, I'm sure, you know, everything is gingerly held and taken care of. But oh, I just I'd can't imagine. i love to hold one of those chess pieces. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So anyway, we're getting sidetracked. <laughs> I have a few students who come to the library to play chess on computers. And I'm going to put together a collection of sites for them to learn more now that I know more. Yeah. We once had a chess club at Goffstown High School. And Stacy, I think you mentioned that you would like to start a ch- chess club here in Goffstown again? Yeah. Yeah, Melissa. I, in the past, the library has had um, some middle school and high school students ask about learning to play chess. Uh, the teen services assistant that ran the teen program prior to um, me taking the position um, did try to get some things off the ground, uh, but I don't think it ever really flourished. Uh, so as I mentioned in the opening, this summer, I do plan on having an intro to chess event, and it is going to be led by an experienced chess player that has a rating of 1900. So 1900. The book spoke about ratings a lot, and basically it is a number that estimates the strength of that player based on performance compared to other players. Anyway, I'm hoping the summer program will spark an interest, and I envision then later a mentoring program of sorts can hopefully grow from there. According to the book, 1900 is really good, so that's so exciting. I'm excited about that. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's move on to theme two, which is books made into movies. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a little less, there is some research, but it's more opinion, I guess, or discussion. so we would love to have readers' opinions if you want to write into us. Yes, um, we have our email, uh, the curious reader dot gpl at gmail dot com. You can that write into good. us. Yep, and if you go on to um, the curious reader podcast onto our main um, page where our podcast is hosted, there's an about us section that also has uh, our email information in there as well. Yeah, so we would love to hear from you, but I'm just going to give you a little food for thought for the second theme. Um, you often hear that the book is better. You do. Yeah. <laughs> you movie hear that. Coming out, the movie comes out, the book is better. But is it perhaps a thing we experience first that is better sometimes? I started wondering, because I love the show, The Queen's Gambit. I like the book a lot, too, but um, I wonder how I would have felt about the series The Queen's Gambit if I had read the book first. In the book, clothes were not all that important to Beth, and the threat of mental illness was Mm -hmm. not there. Mrs. Wheatley did not have a special piano playing talent, nor was she a pretty woman, as in the show. Hmm. Same with Beth. Beth wasn't beautiful in the book. Beth did not redecorate her house. But to me, all the additions of the show made it better. I felt the same way when I read Pygmalion after seeing My Fair Lady, which is my very favorite movie. The book wasn't as bright. I can't think of another word. Um, but I love the books for themselves, but love the movies mm-hmm. more. Conversely, movies such as The Help and Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood pale in comparison to the books in my mind. In these cases, I read the books first. Was I upset that the movies changed the stories that I had loved so much? Was it that I had already had my view of the characters and the movies changed mm-hmm. them? 
Whereas while I was reading The Queen's Gambit, I'm picturing the actress in the starring role. I'm not building my own image, even though the author tells me she has brown hair and I I know it's red. (laughs) (laughs) It is red hair. (laughs) I I definitely think there are wins and losses in the books to movie or books to uh, TV realm. And I do think that what you experience first can make a difference. And so, again, I had only watched one episode of The Queen's Gambit, but in the beginning of the book, um, what I saw was the actress that played Beth. That that was who I envisioned as Beth, as the eight-year-old being dropped off at the orphanage, um, where if I had not seen that, I probably would have had my own um, ideas in mind. So I also, um, for me, I read uh, the book uh, Big Little Lies, and then I watched the TV series. And I was actually angered because they wrote in an affair for one of the um, main characters, And it really soured the whole show for me because in my mind, I had already formed who this character was and the affair went against how, the affair went against how I had, um, that, you know, valued her, what I thought her values were. And she was a family part. And so I was just like, when I watched it, I was like, (laughs) no, she doesn't do that. Like I, I was so upset about it. And some years ago, my oldest had just finished reading, um, The Giver. And so then of course the movie came out and we watched the movie. And he was beside himself. He was so upset with the liberties taken in that movie that he didn't even want to finish it. Uh, It was that poorly done, he said. And then there is the book Mudbound. And that is one of my favorite, favorite books. And I equally loved the movie. It was so well done. Uh, Home Run and and the casting on that was, was fabulous. You know what is the worst, though? What? When you are watching a movie... And someone else has read the book, you're watching it with them, and yeah. you haven't read the book, and they're telling you everything that's wrong with the movie. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is the worst. So try, if you are, shh, don't do that. Just, <laughs> just say, hey, you might want to read the book. <laughs> there are lots of lists on the internet claiming that certain movies are better than the book, and I've posted one from BuzzFeed, which I like the best, to share with you on our Pinterest page. I do really like to compare books and movies when the movie is done well. Mm. Last month, I talked about the book Rebecca and how much I love that title by Daphne du Maurier. Over my winter break, I watched the Hitchcock movie based on the book. I really do think that Hitchcock did a great job with it, and it won an Oscar for the best picture at the time. I was wondering, Stacey, lots of new motion uh, or lots of new modern fiction is immediately made into a movie and lots of old classics that already were made into movies are remade. How often are old books made into a show? How often does that happen that a book is rediscovered and made into a show for the first time 40 years later? Yeah, th- yeah this one, looking at that, but I think it's actually probably more than we realize. Um, and it's funny that you asked this because just recently my husband, uh, he lamented that every show seems to originate from a book and can't screenwriters come up with anything on their own? <laughs> Ouch, 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 ouch. But I think his opinion does not really reflect the average binge watcher. I think most binge watchers are pretty excited about what they're seeing out there um, from book to TV. But I found an article uh, by The Verge about how Hollywood is turning to books and producing some of the best adaptations ever. We um maybe we can uh, add a link in I did the it, article. I did oh, it. you did it! Did, did it. it! Awesome! <laughs> great! Great! The article gives compelling reasons why a studio would reach for an already established plotline and fleshed-out characters. Uh, people are already pre-sold on something that they recognize, right? It's riskier for that company to try to sell an original idea that the public at large knows little about. Uh, and TV studios are in an even better position, and I think that that's why we're seeing so many 
book adaptations being made into these TV series um, because they can take lengthy books and those that are part of a series and they can make them come alive on the screen without worrying about dumbing them down or simplifying them to fit a 90-minute movie reel. Viewers today don't want to wait two years for the next film to come out. They want to binge watch on a timeline that works for them. Yeah, and I read that there's a musical in the works, too. I saw it, and then I researched that, too, and I, wow, I'm trying to think, okay, so what are the songs going to be and the lyrics, and hmm, I'm going to have to see that. But I also kept thinking, how are they going to mess this up? <laughs> and, and, but quite possibly, Hopefully yeah. not. So. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> okay, so moving on to our final theme is women's history, perfect for this month. Last month, Stacey got very excited over the inheritance games. <laughs> Our book this month is more my style, with a focus on character development over time, with deep insight into a person's personal growth. Mm -hmm. um, a main theme of this book was the treatment of girls and women in the mid-20th century. Women's history is one of my favorite topics, too, something near and dear to my heart. My college mentor was an art historian and women's studies professor. Shout out to Professor Mara Witzling. <laughs> In large part through her teaching, I learned to think more about the roles of women throughout history and how much of the history of women has been lost to time. As a librarian and an archivist, which, as I said before, is a person who takes care of collections of primary sources, I've had the opportunity to work with many interesting collections of women's papers, and I've linked to a short interview I did a few years ago for the podcast Chick History, for the Chick History Project, that discusses women and the documentation of women. And this month, we're lucky to have Goffstown High School English and women's perspectives teacher Megan Terrio talk to us about women's history in the 20th century. Ah, see, our listeners were probably like, hey, is there going to be an interview? <laughs> there isn't anyone. Uh, there is. We there saved is. the best for last. <laughs> we had a great conversation. Uh, we could have talked about this topic forever. It was really fun. Um, even though girls today have even more opportunities than I did when I was young, I like to remind myself how lucky I have mm -hmm. it. And, and yeah. Ms. Terrio reminded me of that. I thought that male author Walter Tavis did a particularly good job of addressing the female experience in this book. We have talked about Own Voices books where people use their own cultural backgrounds to inform their writing. This book is not that. It does show that authors can be capable of telling other stories, though. That is some of the controversy we discussed um, about the Own Voices movement in yes. past episodes. So I want to point out a few parts of the book that highlight the role and views of women before I move on to information beyond the book. So first thing that grabbed my attention was Mr. Gans from the uh, high school chess club gave our star Beth yeah. a doll when he came to visit. What's up with that? <laughs> Why didn't he give her a chess board or something chess related? Why yeah. did he assume she was just like a she, doll right, because she was a right. girl? Yeah, that would have made me mad as a little girl. I would have wanted matchbox cars. <laughs> I liked match. Yeah, I liked matchbox cars as well. I loved putting them in the sand and making. Yeah. 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 Well, I did like my Barbies, but for somebody to assume that I. Yeah, I played like with that. my um, brother's He-Man toys. I actually like like his Castle Grayskull was I wanted a Castle Grayskull. He-Man was after my generation. <sighs> a little bit. <laughs> 
Um, so what else? What else? So the next book? thing Rose, um, were Rosa Bonaire paintings, which mm-hmm. is right up my alley. Um, these were a symbol that represents a girl making her mm-hmm. way in a world of men. Rosa Bonaire lived in the 19th century when this was not expected of women. And a girl making her way in a world of men, that's what Beth achieved. Yep. Um, also, then Mr. Wheatley uh, was saying that Mrs. Wheatley talked too much. I just wanted to punch this guy. I, yeah, <laughs> no, you know. Don't be violent. <laughs> no, no violence. And, and thankfully, I was glad he didn't show up too much in the book. No, but, his attitude was a common one toward women in the mid 20th yeah. century. Women were there to serve men. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was also intrigued by the portrayal of Jolene. When we add color into the mix, there are additional issues. There are mm-hmm. lots of studies on the hypersexualization of black teen women. Uh, as portrayed in literature and mm-hmm. media. So that really yeah. stood out to me. Um, and then finally, I noticed when Beth attended her first competition, they told her that there was no women's chess group. But by the middle of the book, Beth said, the US Open would be in three weeks. It was time it was won by a woman. Mm-hmm. And I practically cheered. These, uh, these highlights stood out to me as well, uh, Melissa. And I loved when she dropped the doll in the trash. It was just like, because <laughs> yeah. you see that one on the, on the show. And so I had seen that in the episode. So when I read it in the you know book, I was just like, I could see it just like, why do I even have this thing? Um, I also noticed that Tevis started the conversation about the additional hurdles for women of color. Um, Jolene uh, eventually goes on um, to earn a master's degree and she received a job offer from a white law firm in Atlanta. And it was not lost on Jolene that they offered her this job as lip service to the changing times. In other words, the law firm gave her, um, offered her this, the law firm gave her the perception that they were championing changing times, but it was more, um, it was no more than perception, you know, and Jolene knew that, you know, I'm their token person that they're putting here. And and she was keenly aware of it. And I thought it was interesting that. Walter Tevis was keenly aware and added that in his story yeah, at the he, end. He had a lot of, um, he was very aware. He yeah. was ahead of his time, I think, a little bit. Yeah. So um, women were supposed to know their place, letting the man dominate and not allowing themselves to show their smarts. And to dive more into this, we're going to now listen to uh, Miss Terrio to ask, um, as I asked her questions about some of the issues related to what women encountered at this time. So let's listen here to what she had to say. So in World War II, women were finally able to enjoy a little bit of financial and economic independence because they were able to take the men's jobs who were serving overseas in the war. But when men came back, there was a coordinated campaign to get women back into the home. And that was done mostly by the private sector. So companies like KitchenAid and Frigidaire and Maytag created all sorts of new enticing technology to get women back into the home to become primary caretakers. And I wrote down um, domestic goddesses. And um, in uh, The Feminine Mystique, Free Dan interviews people, women who talk about this, how like Many of them are college educated. Not all of them that she interviewed, though, because she she covered broad swaths of women in American society. But many of them are college educated and talk about how they just find they're busy all day, but they are busy doing things that they don't like doing. And it's endless because they're taking 
first they're making breakfast for their husbands and then they're cleaning up his dishes and waking the kids up and getting the kids ready to go to school. And then while the kids are at school, they're taking care of the little ones at home and they might be sewing or they might be washing clothes or they might be organizing community things. So they're busy with all these tasks, but obviously they're not fulfilled and they're um, reticent to share, to, to commiserate about this lack of fulfillment because they've been told by society and media and their own mothers even that this is what you should be happy doing. So there must be something wrong with you if you're not happy taking care of five kids and cleaning up and doing dishes and cooking. And um, so, so 60 years ago, there definitely was a much more overt message to girls and women that their role was in the home. And even you you could even look at like classified ads for job postings and they would be segregated by gender. So women could not apply to certain positions and men too, men couldn't apply to become nurses or at the time secretaries. Now we would call them administrative assistants. And then I think with flight attendants, then it was called stewardesses. Flight attendants were only female. And I believe they were fired when they reached 35. It could be 32 and I'll have to look that up, but they were they were just too old. It was time for them to get married and have kids, which makes me think 35 was not the age, but they were just fired. They were given roses by their employer and pack, sent, sent packing. Given roses by their employers. Just wow. Megan then gave us some sense of how and why things changed, why women got more opportunities. I was thinking about my mom as a kid. She told me stories about what she was not allowed to do. And for example, this is the one that sticks with me the most. And I tell girls this. Um, my daughter was kind of floored. So my mom was once not let into her school on a cold day because she was wearing pants to school. She had her skirt in her bag to change, but the school required all girls to wear skirts. So they sent her home because she was not wearing one at the door. Rather than letting her in to change, they said, right. go home. Go home. And luckily, uh, a parent of a friend was there to, to drive her, but she was, she was freezing. Um, so take a listen to Megan talking about the changes over the last decades of the 20th century and think about the world in which Beth Harmon lived. I think it changed when people like Gloria Steinem and Angela Davis, and also groups fighting for racial equality started to realize that there was a system, but that system could be questioned and it could be kind of bucked. People weren't going to like it and they're not going to like it when you don't shave your legs and when you burn your bra and you refuse to do the dishes. And there's going to be a lot of public pushback, but questioning the system and questioning the status quo is something that you could do. And so I think that as groups, different groups began to do that, women felt more empowered to do it as well. And that's where we start to see the wave of the second wave of feminism, where it's all about um, sexual liberation and cultural liberation too. And um, so that there was like a collective sense of empowerment there. So it's funny, I often tell my my own daughter and my students and the kids I coach about how things have changed since I was a kid. So for example, they wouldn't let kids pole vault. I was on the track team. And there was one time my sister and I wanted to do steeplechase and they said, no. And she and I said, oh, we're just going to do it. Somebody got word of this and said, well, if you, if you go into the boys race, cause there wasn't one for girls, um, we will disqualify your whole team. And this was just the eighties. It wasn't that long ago. So I think just in the past, 
well, to me, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> no, I feel the same way. Uh, yeah. Um, in the PBS Maker series, they do they do an interview. I think they have one episode specifically on sports, and I think it's Catherine Switzer. She was a, one of the Boston Marathon, one of the first women to run the marathon, and she said how the marathon was closed to women until the 1960s, 1966. But one of the reasons that it was closing was like the honest medical belief that a woman's uterus would fall out. Right. So, and that, that doesn't, that seems so absurd, but also not long ago. I also asked Megan how women got to where we find them in the 1950s and early 1960s when Beth's story takes place. I find it really interesting to think of all of the female characters through this lens. Think about Mrs. Deerdorf. Think about Mrs. Wheatley Mm -hmm. and the girls at Beth's school who are preparing for life after high school with their clubs. Mm -hmm. Here's what Megan, Mrs. Terrio, had to say. We are doing we are doing something called the cult of domesticity right now in women's perspectives, where we're learning about the role that the Industrial Revolution had on the home, because the Industrial Revolution is really what created two separate spheres, where men were expected to be able to go out into the working world, which was often thought of as a, as a tough, violent, um, lewd, crude, vulgar world, and women were relegated to the home sphere. But that's not always the case. I often think about the book, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair and how um, men and women in certain industries, in certain cities were both working in factories. But the goal was to earn enough money so that you'd eventually be able to leave the tenement building that you're living in and own a home. And then at that point, the goal would be that the female would become the domestic goddess. So while her husband is the primary Um, breadwinner and earner, she would be the one who's in control of the household. And there were kind of four ideals that women were really expected to uphold, piety, purity, domesticity, and submissiveness. And the belief was that if we can get women preoccupied with all of these things, if we can make sure that she's reading the Bible and being a good Christian woman, and we can make sure that she's submissive and taking care of the kids and taking care of the house, then maybe she won't get in her mind that she's tied to this life and that she really can't hope to do anything other than this. And finally, there were so many good quotes. I could, and we're (laughs) going to post her whole interview online as well on the YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of what we're talking about here, finally, I asked Ms. Terrio about inequities that still exist today and how this impacts women's lives. Here was what she had to say. In theory, it seems like women and men are equal. We we are not treated differently by the law. And there is no longer the ability for um, a company to say women cannot apply for this position or men cannot apply for this position. One of the things I do at the beginning of every semester of Women's Perspectives is I just list off professions. I'll say firefighter or teacher or principal or president or banker or secretary. And I I, I won't say fireman and I'll and I won't say um I won't, I won't reveal gender with the title of the profession, but we just start to see how when we think of nurse, we think of young white female. And when we think of doctor, we think of older male. And so that's not to say that men can't be nurses and that women can't be doctors. It's just to say that we kind of have these implicit associations. And when people in power are trying to elevate other people to those powerful positions, if they're not aware of their own implicit biases, that trickles down. If if institutions 
private institutions, government institutions, public institutions don't have diversified leaders, then it's it might not be that they're intentionally being sexist. It's just that they're implicitly biased to help people who remind them of themselves. So I highly recommend that you listen to the whole interview, which we share again on YouTube. Um, she had a lot of interesting things to say that need to be edited for time. So please do check out our YouTube page and see some of the other videos we're putting up for you. We're trying to do one a week. So um, we hope you find some things there to enjoy. So to wrap it up, because this was a lot, let's just specifically talk about women's chess as it relates um, to Women's History Month. Okay. So I learned about a woman named Vera Menchik, who was the first women's champion in 1927 when the World Chess Federation established the championship. She was the dominant female player until her death. Hmm. Menchik was taught chess by her father. She was born to wealthy Russian parents. They became impoverished during the Russian Revolution in 1919. Her parents divorced, and she immigrated to England with her mom, who was English-born. She turned to chess to offer her solace. She couldn't speak English. She didn't need to speak English to play. She joined a local club and became a dominant player, working her way up to international tournaments. She became a chess tour de force, competing against men in competitions that had been reserved for men up until that time, just like our Beth Harmon Mm -hmm. in The Queen's Gambit. Unfortunately, Menchik died in an air raid on Kent in 1944. She was the first woman elected to the Chess Hall of Fame, now in St. Louis. Hmm. She was the 16th person out of men and women, inducted out of 37 currently there. Hmm. She's a legend whom those outside of the chess field really should know. Today, women can play in the open competition with men, but there is also women's only chess. The Women's Chess Championship still exists. Female chess is perhaps seen as a way of encouraging women to play. It gives them an opportunity to get equal media attention and to develop a camaraderie among peers. However, I was very interested in articles that discuss the disadvantages of separating women and men, including the reinforcement of stereotypes, lowered expectations, and less opportunities, including... Women's bathrooms tend to be far away from where the chess championships are, whereas men's are usually right easy for them to get to. So little things like that, when we talk about equity, are important. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of interesting. In the news lately has, um, I think it was, is it the um, NCAA women's basketball? And just talking about the differences between the, you know, the what um, the weight room of the men's looks like compared to the weights in the workout area that women get. So still a lot to be done. A lot to be done despite Title IX. Mm-hmm. So female players in chess tend to be much younger than men, maybe because new opportunities are opening up to women they had never had before, but there are still way fewer women chess players than men. A 2019 study showed that only 14.6% of members in chess clubs, and I don't know if this is worldwide or national, um, are women. There is a very interesting study that they are trying to get off the ground as a GoFundMe project, which I found interesting, to study women's participation in chess. In an article in Chess News, I read that researchers are interested in learning more about the differences between how men and women play chess. 
Only within the past couple of decades have we really noted the need to scientifically study women separately from men, even mm-hmm. with medicine, which is just incredible since we're very different. different. <laughs> we once offered women all kinds of treatments based on studies of men and made all kinds of assumptions about differences between the sexes without scientific data to actually back it up. I think there will be a lot of study in this area over time. There are giant gaps in research and lots of topics related to psychology, neurology, social science, economics, and more that apply. So kids, if you're looking for a field of study, here are some ideas for you. Interestingly, no American has ever won the women's championship. So if you do start that chess club, Stacey, maybe one goal should be to get more girls involved. Well, you know, I'm thinking uh, how Mr. Shabel's comment to Beth in the beginning of this book, um, it just popped into my head. He stated, girls don't play chess. Well, girls, um, Mr. Shabel was wrong. Girls do play chess. They play it well. So sign on up. All right. And I think that call to action is a great place to end our podcast today. Listeners, as always, I am so happy you joined us. If you are enjoying all that Melissa and I have to say, please make sure you tell your friends about the Curious Reader podcast. And now I cannot let you go without sharing what Melissa and I will be discussing next month. In April, the Gosstown Public Library is starting a community conversation about the environment. The library will separate fact from fiction and foster a dialogue to improve our town and planet for the future. Topics will include trash and recycling, stormwater, weather, global climate change, birds, bees, and so much more. So knowing that, Melissa and I thought it would be a nice idea to have our young adult book fit in with that theme in a dystopian way. (laughs) So picture it. Swarms of infected flies roam the earth. Few survivors remain navigating the woods of a post-apocalyptic New England each on their own quest to find life and love in a world gone dark. Join us next month when we discuss The Electric Kingdom by David Arnold. Thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.